We all have what's called awareness, the part of the mind that observes. Literally, if you want to know, it's uh, probably don't need to know this, but it's uh, largely situated in a region called cingulate, and you've got a left cingulate and a right cingulate. You've pretty much always got uh, mirror versions of everything in the brain. Your left cingulate controls your attention when you want to focus on something. Your right cingulate is that part of your mind that keeps pulling your attention to really unpleasant memories or to people that you're attached to when you're ruminating about a relationship. And um, so when you wake up in the morning and you're groggy and you can't focus and you drink a cup of coffee, what it's doing is it's adding a whole bunch of acetylcholine which strengthens the uh, cingulate that allows you to then focus your awareness and sustain it. Now your awareness is capable of pretty much holding many, many different objects in uh, its observing faculty, but your cingulate in and of itself, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't have any ability to act in the world. It simply observes. And generally, it feels pretty vulnerable and powerless unless it and the rest of your awareness becomes identified or lands in other parts of the brain that are active and volitional and can make you do things and can make you feel more substantial and present in the world. So the Buddha said at any given moment our awareness collapses around one of five experiences or components or aggregates as he called them. The first four are really easy to list and explain. You can become aware of your body and the sensations of your body, and sometimes we're just really aware of our embodied feeling. We can become aware of our gut feelings, that sense of intuition, that feeling of like or dislike in any situation. We can become aware of the senses that are arriving into the mind, sights, sounds, smells, or aromas, uh, tastes, contact sensations with the world. And fourth, there is our thoughts. <laughs> now, any of those things your mind, your awareness can collapse around and you can fill up your awareness with and feel quite caught up in. The fifth component, though, is not particularly easy to describe. And the Buddha did us no favors because he never actually defined it. He lists it all the time, but he never actually stops to say what it is. Fortunately, there were a lot of commentaries from the time that lets us know what it is. The fifth aggregate is called sana, and it's the mind's tendency to label and categorize things as good or bad, likable or unlikable, people as abandoning or engulfing. People, you know, it essentially looks at the world and creates a black and white label that we affix to things so we know how we feel about everything in the future. So, for example, if the first 200,000 years of human existence, we were scavengers. Now, don't believe the hype. You probably read somewhere that we were hunter-gatherers. That's a lot of BS. 
we didn't really successfully hunt anything. We actually roamed around for 200,000 years picking up dead things. And because human beings are not particularly good predators. In fact, uh, you know, when they talk about the paleo diet, the fact was that the meat that people would have eaten would have all been dead and lying around for a long time. <laughs> we were a pretty gross lot, in other words. Uh, the way we scavenged and forged, most of the time, we would be uh, picking mushrooms and berries and seeds and grass and flowers and just eating. And then when we got sick, we'd remember, oh, what the hell was that that I ate? And we'd make a mental note. Oh, any, any mushroom that's green and purple, I'm not going to eat. So that becomes a label or a marker. And we just think, oh, that thing is bad. I'm going to avoid it from now on. Same thing with situations. You, you go into a certain area where there's a limited escape route Route, you get in trouble and you might you get surrounded by antagonizing people from another tribe you might not go to that area again you'd label that area as bad unsafe avoid now most of the time that we label in fact we use it to label people because the labeling faculty really helps us interpersonally we are herd or pack animals and the faculty of creating a label, this person is safe, this person is worthwhile, this person is somebody I should gravitate towards, or this person is unsafe, is one of the most important faculties we have. Very early in life, we develop a whole list of markers that help us label new people very quickly. So, for example, if you grew up with a parent who would suddenly grow quiet and look away before they lost interest in you and abandoned you and didn't pay attention, as an adult and throughout your life, you will rely on that marker, the person who grows quiet and looks away, will signify abandonment to you. And when you see somebody pull their attention away or not pay attention, or uh, suddenly grow very quiet, you might become very uncomfortable because you've laid down the marker in childhood that that, that is the precursor to abandonment. On the other hand, if you grew up with an engulfing parent, and a parent that didn't give you enough space, when a parent would start asking you questions, inquiring about your day, asking about your plans, you might view and label questioning as, uh-oh, I'm losing my space, my freedom, I'm about to be controlled, I'm about to be engulfed. So we start to label all kinds of behaviors as good or bad. Now, obviously these labels helped us for the first 200,000 years of human existence knowing, ooh, somebody who's from that tribe is about to attack me, very helpful, knowing that this plant will make me sick, that that area over there will lead me to being ambushed, is very useful. 
Also, sometimes the labels that we use to help us navigate through life and make sense of people can be very useful. For instance, uh, some of us who grew up with uh, alcoholic or abusive parents develop what's known as hypervigilance, and sometimes hypervigilance can help us feel safer because we can read the minute facial expressions of other people and begin to feel a sense of uh, forewarning when somebody's about to become filled with rage or aggression or criticism or judgment. I grew up with an alcoholic father, and my dad did have some giveaways that would indicate I could see his face grow red and I could see his eyes darting and immediately indicated to me that it was unsafe to stay around him. However, the bad news is, is for many, many years I would feel unsafe around men who would exhibit those same traits even though it wasn't an indicator that they were about to become violent or rageful. I simply marked somebody whose face was turning red and their eyes darting and a stiffness in the body for me became a universal symbol of this person is unsafe. Sometimes it's true, sometimes it's not. Here's the thing about marks or labels. The Buddha noted that their biggest problem is that they are very, very difficult to change. And the earlier in life we establish them, the more ingrained and the more painful it is to undo them. And according to most 20th century psychologists like Bowlby and Ainsworth and Winnicott, a lot of our perceptions or labels or what some call eternal working models, that thing that helps us quickly label and figure out if people are safe or not safe are established very, very early in life and it's very, very difficult to let them go. Now these, these labels or these cues that we rely on, one psychologist, M. Scott Peck, called them roadmaps. They determine the things that make us feel frightened and about to be engulfed or abandoned and also they determine the things and people that we're attracted to. So they're not just negative, they can be positive as well. We choose our partners in life very often because our partners resemble, alas, our caretakers in many ways, for good or for bad. If you grow up with a caretaker who's controlling, engulfing, there's a very good likelihood that you might choose a partner who exhibits that tendency. If you grew up with a caretaker that was abandoning, who disappeared suddenly from the family system, you might be compelled to choose partners who are abandoning. If you grew up with a partner, a caretaker who's secure, you might very well choose that. So, why do we choose people that reenact characteristics of our parents or caretakers or people around when we were children that weren't particularly satisfying all the time. Why do we choose people who reenact our childhood dramas? Well, one is because they validate our worldviews and they allow us 
to reuse our childhood coping strategies that we relied on in childhood. So for example, a child who grows up with a parent who's engulfing will develop avoidant tendencies. They'll start to avoid the parent. So when we choose a partner in adult life that has the same characteristics or behaviors, we get to reenact the same coping strategies that made us feel safe in our childhood. So in life, as we develop friendships and loving relationships, guess what? Even if we didn't necessarily choose our partners to be exactly like our caretakers, we will do what's called project these early maps, these early marks and expectations onto the people in our life. Like I was saying with my father, I would see in him, before he became abusive, I would see a change in his skin color in his face, his eyes would start moving differently, his body would become tense. So when I would see anything like that, I would project immediately a sense of fear and a sense of feeling unsafe, and I would become hypervigilant in those situations. When we project onto the people in our life old experiences, and we do this as adults very frequently, what it does is it makes us actually regress because we no longer see the person as they actually are today. We see them from the perspective of a vulnerable child. So when I would see men go into that the markers that I saw my father go into, I would immediately start to feel very vulnerable and I would become very, very, very defensive the same way I was with my father growing up because I was no longer experiencing myself as a full adult guy with tattoos. <laughs> you know, I'm, I, I don't, I, I really... I'm a wimp, but I'm not a particularly, you know, tiny person. But when we see other people through the lens of projection, where we're projecting roadmaps or internal working models or childhood schemas or labels, sanas, the Buddha called it, onto other people, we no longer experience ourselves as full adults. We experience ourselves as vulnerable and much younger and much more endangered. You ever have that experience where, uh, of course, none of you will. I'll just put it out anyway. Uh, you you date somebody for a while and then something goes wrong in the relationship and you break up. And then when you see them, you start viewing them as the abandoner or the person who neglected or wasn't right for you, and then you get this feeling of tightness maybe in the stomach or an unease for a while that creates a, a regressive feeling of wanting to avoid them and your heart starts beating. And even though they're the same, essentially the same person or body that you were sleeping with maybe a few weeks ago earlier, now when you see them, you just want to get away because you, know, you have a feeling of being unsafe. All right, nobody knows what I'm talking about. Just work with me. So that's, that's the regressive 
uh, state that happens when we project childhood schemas onto partners in our life. And we do this all the time. In arguments with friends and loved ones, we can feel that they're being far more critical than they are, far more dismissive, far more, um, you know, uh, instructional, far more anything unsafe than they really are because something in their behavior or the situation has triggered the old label of I'm not safe or I'm about to be abandoned or I'm about to be engulfed. And then all we do is we see them through that lens of the vulnerable child. I'll give you one of my favorite examples of this. I use this all the time. But when you, as a Dharma teacher, when you come up with a gem, you use it all the time. You'll just hear any Dharma teacher you listen to, they'll repeat stories because they love their stories. So I have this friend, this guy, I, go, I, uh, I know him, uh, go out to dinner occasionally, and um, this guy was, uh, he's very avoidant grew up with a very enmeshing mother, didn't have enough space, and uh, felt a sense of um, constant being uh, monitored by his mother. His father had disappeared from the family when he was very young, and so that is a, that also helps create enmeshment. And so when he, uh, he's, he's, uh, likes to hook up with women, but Anything can make them feel extreme, make them feel extremely uh, 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 crowded, smothered. So he hooks up with this woman, and it happens to be his birthday. The next morning, he wakes up and she looks at him. I guess it was on his Tinder or whatever, his Facebook thing, and she says, "Happy birthday." And he races out, and he comes to see us, and he says, Can you believe that? She said, Happy birthday. What is that? How, how lack of boundaries is that? I was thinking, what? And, but the dinner was filled with all these other avoiding guys who also grew up with, you know, and they were like, oh my God, she said, what? And I, I thought I was in this other reality where saying happy birthday is, you know, considered to be, you know, like a horrible, this ultimate reality where it's like, so he was hearing everything through the filter of enmeshment and engulfment. And when we are, when we grow up with caretakers that are in, in, uh, engulfing and we wind up in a relationship, there's every likelihood that we will hear people through that filter. And if we grow up with a parent that's avoidant or abandoning or who disappears, we will hear every statement every lack of communication, every phone call that doesn't come when we expect it, or email or message that doesn't come, we'll experience that through the scrim of, I'm about to be abandoned. And if we grow up with an abusive parent, we'll see every action through the scrim of, I'm about to be abused. 
And as we grow up with, you know, so you get the idea. We project onto the people in our life, especially in relationships where we're vulnerable, because children feel vulnerable to their parents. So as adults, when we're in a relationship where we don't know how we're being evaluated, where we don't know, uh, which is essentially romance, you know, at work you know how you're being evaluated, and friends you probably know, if you play in a band, you know you're being evaluated by how good you play that bass guitar. I don't know what I'm doing. Anyway, uh, so you know how you're being evaluated then, but in a relationship or with a new friendship or, you know, maybe with a boss, you might not know how you're being evaluated. In those situations where we speculate and we're unsure, those are the most ripe for projection and bringing internal family systems out onto, onto bear and for projection to occur. So... It's not surprising that the spiritual goal is to help us see people clearly and to undermine the tendency to project labels, categories, or expectations onto people. From Albert Ellis back to the Buddha, that has been the goal, to examine and see the underlying distortions that are not allowing us to see the other people in our lives clearly without adding our stuff to it. So, tools to help you develop what the Buddha called Yumisa Manasikara, which is the ability to see other people clearly without our distorting tendencies or labels or categories to filter and to create misreadings of what's actually happened. So the first is called investigating resentments. One of the main ways that we are activated in relationships is when we feel a resentment, which a resentment is simply carrying around a story about the other person when they're not with us, when they're not around. Generally, it's a thought of disappointment about something they've done. It could be the fact that they didn't acknowledge us, they've not remembered to do something, they've acted in a way that we consider to be self-centered, they haven't paid attention to us. So whenever there is a, remu uh, um, a resentment or rumination repeating the story in our mind, that is called an activation. When you're activated, the first thing to do is to drop the story of why we are angry at this person and to find the pain beneath the frustration and resentment. So feel the discomfort in the body, the agitation in the mind, but drop the story of how they should have done, they should have called me when, when they didn't, they should have showed up when they didn't, they should have done this when they didn't, blah, blah, blah. Drop the story, feel the pain. Then ask a question that's very generic, extremely generic and open-ended that describes the situation but has lost all the details. I'll give you an example. So, uh, one of my favorite examples is um, I personally don't like weddings. I really don't. I, I can give you the, all the reasons. I've done this, sh I've told so many 
Buddhist meetings why I hate weddings. Just take my word for it. I don't like them. But, and when people invite me to weddings, I always secretly think, how can I get out of going? But, when people don't invite me to their weddings, then I go, hmm. <laughs> I feel uninvited and unincluded. So, there's no winning with me. Uh, so, when I might feel uninvited to a social event, right? I think it happens to us all. Um, another friend of mine was telling me that they were at this job and they were dreading being invited to the barbecue, but when they weren't invited, then they got filled with resentment. So, let's use that. I like that one. So we feel uninvited to the barbecue. We might get tempted to think in the store, at a story, I invited them, I've been a hard worker, I've been a good friend, why am I not? Drop all the details and simply ask the most generic, open-ended question to ourselves, how does it feel to not be included? That's what's really the basic experience, not being included. How does it feel to not be included? Feeling the pain beneath the frustration and asking, how does it feel to not be included? And then sit and keep the mind open and just wait as we ask that question. And eventually, when we ask again and again softly, what does it remind me of? How does it feel? what wants my attention, eventually bubbling up as if by magic from the wells of your right hemispheric temporal lobe <laughs> will come a old memory from maybe high school or grade school or in my case virtually always Jewish summer camp which is where <laughs> all Jews to go to get tortured. Um, some experience will come up and will announce themselves and that memory then will contain a much deeper wounding experience and that is what has created the resentment because in life things that do not have previous wounds to them do not turn into resentments if you've never been if somebody does something that's kind of unfortunate to you, but it doesn't trigger an old wounding experience, you won't think about it over and over again. You'll be insulted, but you'll just move on. But if your mind, your right hemisphere, keeps bringing you back to the story again and again and again of what happened, it means there's an old wounding experience beneath it that is now waiting to be connected with. And if you can go and grab and connect with that older wounding experience, then you can feel the unmet need there and attend to it and separate the current resentment from the old wound. And you can heal the old wound by finding the needs that weren't met. So in my case, when I wasn't invited, uh, if I, you know, I mean, that it, the old wound was always invariably those feelings of being very young and not being invited in seventh grade and feeling left out and ostracized. So when I find that old wound, I know that the unmet need 
is the need to feel included and seen and, and cared for by others. So when I feel that deeper need, I can let go of the resentment story and go about stating my needs to people if I need to, or healing them by saying, it's all right, I'll take care of you now. I'll make sure I find people who are accepting and loving and caring. In doing that, I'm stripping away the old label and category from the new experience. I'm finding what is beneath my current anger, frustration, fear, and I'm detaching what's underneath it so that I can see clearly the people in my life today that are disappointing for exactly what they are without attaching all this old stuff to it, which is going to make them seem far worse, far more dangerous, far more unloving, far... And I've heard people like the example with the person, you know, who's, you know, the, with the uh, happy birthday. We can turn anything into a large resentment if we don't unpack the early wounds beneath it. So that's one technique. The other technique is to sit with people we're in relationships with when there's a conflict and have somebody make a statement, I feel, I feel this, I feel when uh, I spend, I feel I've cleaned up the apartment and you just come in and drop your clothes anywhere you want, or I feel that I paid for all the last time we went out to dinner and you only paid once, I feel whatever. Make a statement, and then the other person doesn't get to defend themselves, doesn't get to reply. They, in this practice, simply repeat back what they heard in different words. I'm hearing you say that you feel that you pay for every restaurant or that you're always doing the cleaning and that I haven't done any of the tidying up around the house. That's the first part. That's called mirroring, just repeating back what the other person says. And then the second part is empathizing and validating, which is... What is the feeling that the person we're speaking with is trying to convey? So if somebody says, I feel that I'm always cleaning up or that I'm always taking us out or that I'm always putting the effort into the relationship, etc., then we say, I hear you saying that you don't feel that I'm putting in as much effort or that your efforts are not being acknowledged. And you keep doing that until the, the, the second person accurately describes the feeling of the first person. That's empathizing and validating. Once that process is done, then the partners change roles. And the second partner says, I feel that uh, I am doing things in this other arena. I'm cleaning up the bathroom all the time, and maybe I don't take us out to dinner, but I'm the one who's always planning our vacations or whatever. And so then this first person has to repeat back without changing and then state the feelings. Now, why do we do this? Well, the reason why we do this is because it turns out that what keeps arguments and conflicts going and growing in relationships is the inability to mentalize the other people. 
Mentalize means understand the underlying emotion. And there's a lot of research by Peter Fanaghi and Gottman, etc., that shows that if we can understand the underlying emotion beneath what somebody else is saying, we might not dis- we might not agree with their fact claims. We might not agree that they're the one who's always cleaning up, or they're the one that's always buying dinner, or they're the ones that are always planning vacations, or whatever. We might not agree with their fact claim, but we can always understand emotions if we take the time to it, because we all share the same emotion. So what this practice does is get us to repeat back the emotions that people are trying to convey in their statements. And it turns out when somebody we're in a relationship with hears and empathizes with an underlying feeling, that is what makes us feel secure and connected and safe in a relationship. Studies show that it's not somebody agreeing with our statements. You can be in a relationship with a Republican, God forbid, but you could. (laughs) And they could have a completely different view of reality than you. But so long as they're capable of hearing your underlying emotions, you could find happiness. On the other hand, if you're in a relationship with somebody who's politically absolutely identical with you, but they are incapable of empathizing and creating a tolerant emotional exchange, you will never feel safe or secure in that relationship because the thing that bonds us together is not the thinking mind, it's the emotional mind, which is deeply ingrained in unconscious processes. We can't logic ourselves. We need to develop the ability to tune and mirror. One of my teachers, Tan Jeff, who runs a monastery in San Diego, or outside of San Diego, told me that there's a process in monasteries of working through um, disagreements, which is each, when there's a disagreement between renunciates, nuns, or between monks, before they allow them to resolve the issue, each monk has to state accurately the viewpoint of the other month. And it's only when they do that that they are allowed to work on the solution. It's the exact same thing as the structure I told you, which, by the way, is borrowed from what's called imago therapy and other new therapeutic techniques like Gottman. Simply stating the view and feeling of somebody else creates the bond of safety that allows us to see each other clearly without projecting, without distorting. So I hope there was something of value in